G'day, I'm Barry Green. Thanks for joining me on Conversations on Radio WA, 87.6 FM in East Perth and Western Tourist Radio in the southwest of WA. My next guest will be well known to ABC TV viewers, having featured on Australian Story four times. David Pollock took over the family station, Walleen, in the Murchison region in Western Australia as a 27-year-old in 2007 and set about doing things very differently. In 2019, he released a book called The Willeen Way, Renewing an Australian Resource. David's book has been endorsed by the former Governor-General of Australia and former Governor of Western Australia, Major General Michael Jeffrey, saying, With passion, wisdom and keen observation, David Pollock has conducted a masterclass of regenerative rangeland instruction, supported by a doable plan. And former Australian of the Year, Tim Flannery, called it an astonishing story of reviving the oldest land on earth. The Willeen Way is a revelation. G'day, David. G'day, Barry. It's very nice of them to say that, isn't it? It was. But people like that don't say things like that without good cause. So you grew up on Willeen and your dad, Brett, uh, made the decision to to pass the station to yourself, to sell it to yourself rather than your brother. Tell us, how did that decision come about and what prompted that? How that decision came about? Well, I guess my mother died, so Dad didn't want to be here by himself. So, And his two sons wanted to go in to different directions So with the station. So, um, so yeah, I guess he had to, had, to, had to make a choice. And your decision was to destock the station, which was controversial and uh, at, at odds with uh, the Pastoral Lands Board, the PLB. Tell us a bit about that. Well, initially it was contrary to to our le- our, uh, our lease conditions in that we were supposed to ask for permission before we destocked, and I I destocked and then asked for permission six months later, and it took them a year to get back to me and say that yes, I could destock, which I thought it was a bit long, uh, you know, especially if you wanted to make if you wanted to make um, take advantage of you know the seasonal conditions and you want to destock because you're too dry or that sort of thing, then you know you don't want the regulator taking a year to make that decision. So I had a bit of a whinge about that at the National Rangelands Conference, and then they changed it uh, the next month so that you can now destock. I think for up to five years without asking for permission but you still have to be predominantly pastoral so technically that means that you can destock but you're not allowed to make any money it's a bit strange which is a bit of a problematic business model isn't it so your destocking of course would have been a waste of time without shutting down your water supplies because otherwise you'd just get invasion of uh, other species well at that time it would have been a waste of time because uh, we had heaps of goats and kangaroos throughout the landscape. It wouldn't be such a problem now. I mean, if you have dingoes in the landscape, well, then they can manage the kangaroos and goats. But if you don't have dingoes, then, yeah, turning off your water points was really the only way to get, you know, really good uh, grazing control. So the dingoes have come back naturally, and that sort of restored some balance to the ecosystem. Is that what's happened yes yeah yeah I mean, it, so those those animals kangaroos and goats um you know have uh, at the times that they've measured them have represented up to 61 percent of the grazing pressure so that's 49 percent of the grazing pressure was kangaroos 
and 12% was goats. So, you know, they're, you know, in terms of managing the landscape, they're a, a much bigger issue than how many, uh, how much stock you've got because you can manage your stock, you can keep it out of, keep them out of areas that, uh, uh, you know, need rest, but you can't manage the goats and kangaroos and they, you know, they end up making sure that you can't, uh, you can never rest areas, which means you can never recover them. So the whole process of the recovery is what's increasingly being referred to as regenerative agriculture. It's regenerative in that just allowing the plants to grow is rebuilding the soil. And I guess prior to pastoral activity, then the Aboriginal people managed the landscape pretty much in that fashion. Yeah, well, I guess we don't really know exactly how they managed it in this countryside, like this this particular area, uh, which is a real shame because that knowledge was accumulated over thousands of years and, and you know, on a, on, a, on a really long time scale, which is exactly what we need to manage this landscape on. And, you know, we've sort of beaten it down to the point where it's unprofitable and now we have no idea, well, we, we're, not, we're not sure what's the most expedient way to, re, to recover it, but also how to manage it after that point. You know, that knowledge would have been fantastic to hang on to. But, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, uh, I mean, it's hard to know whether Aboriginal people managed it into the form that it was in when we got here or whether, you know, they were, uh, whether they were particularly trying to foster the natural processes that were always, always there. But either way, it was in good shape, so it would have been good to know what they were doing. So you have a good working relationship with the Aboriginal people of the area now? Yeah, we do, yep. yep. We always have. Your dad's been coming here since he was a little kid, since he was four. Yep. And uh, he was really interested in what, uh, in, the, in, the, well, in, the, in, the, in the Wadjuri people's uh, culture when he was here as a jackaroo in the 70s and probably paid a lot of attention to some of those old fellows um, when a lot of people weren't doing that. So the dust storms we've seen recently in the last year, that, that's a symptom of a failed system, isn't it? And I'm pretty sure we didn't have dust storms in Australia when Aboriginal people were managing the landscape. Uh, they certainly wouldn't have been as frequent uh, and as bad, you know, uh, as bad and as often as they are at the moment. No. So a statement uh, in your book which sort of struck a chord with me in the, the, the challenge you've had in dealing with the public service, uh, and I'll, I'll read it. As anyone except the public servants seems to understand, innovation is the result of one person thinking differently, and it is very difficult for a large group of people to agree on something innovative. That's because there is a high degree of risk to anything that is innovative. Inevitably, a group will come up with something only slightly different from what was being done before. It might be a step in the right direction, but a very small one. The government makes sure of this because it also puts a lot of emphasis on risk mitigation, which might as well be called innovation mitigation. And I think that uh, goes to the heart of a lot of the problems we have in Australia. We look to government to solve problems, but really the problems are going to be solved by, as you say, individuals thinking differently. And uh, and you've been a, a great example of what can be achieved there. And, and I think the other thing that I took from your book... Um, Western Tourist Radio is obviously a tourist radio format, but you, you've used tourism to provide the economic base in your transition period. Do you want to? And and you made the comment that um, 
you know, your dad, because your dad was doing tourism before you took over, every, every uh, tourist group coming through, that's one less one less uh, beast you have to run. So I guess, uh, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, well, so, yeah, the tourism, you know, started by mum and dad, and they were, you know, did a very good job of it, you know, won awards within a couple of years of starting it. So the tourism product was already there. I wasn't managing it particularly well in the six months that I was here alone, but Francis came along, and Francis's passion is tourism, so um, that worked very nicely, and Francis has sort of built the tourism up since that time. But, yeah, tourism is essentially uh, paid for the recovery of the landscape, really, and uh, we're probably, even after 12 years, we're probably just at the point now, while we've still got a fair bit of infrastructure put in to, to run the cattle the way that we want to, but we're just now sort of turning our focus back on pastoralism, I guess, and trying to find a, uh, a sustainable way to to, uh, to take that forward. I, I was struck by the point you were making that when you were taking groups out there, you were think, hoping the one person of this group might be somebody to, to, to take um, the message further and uh, and the you wrote the book to try and get that message out further and I certainly think the success of the book is uh, will be doing that and I'd like to think that uh, our radio program can take that message a bit further and I think we're in a period of profound change and in Western Australia at the moment we've got a Minister for Agriculture in Alana McTiernan who's embraced the concept of regenerative agriculture and embraced Charles Massey's book Call of the Reed Warbler, A New Agriculture and a New Earth and in my own situation in another life we've been involved in organic and agriculture for 30 years and it's really quite inspiring to see the change and the new hope that's coming out of of that and uh, it's all it's all individuals thinking differently but um the internet and books like yours and charles massey's is sort of bringing all these things together well yeah it's not too soon by any means you know it's been you know apparent that we've need do something different for a long time and I guess it's only once things get really bad that people, you know, that that change is really uh, embraced uh, and hopefully this is the point hopefully it doesn't have to get much worse to, uh, to get people, you know to, to or not just you know, not just the, the people on the ground uh, you know, not just the land managers we also need you know, society to come along as well because essentially they're the ones, you know, agriculture is the sort of, is the sort of industry where you find it very hard to dictate what, the, you know, the price that they need and if we're going to look after the landscape um, as well as produce our product, then, you know, the cost of looking after the landscape needs to be incorporated into the product. And I think, you know, people are becoming much more aware of the necessity of... Uh, paying the true cost for the products rather than just the cost to produce it. But, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, it's a really exciting space to be in. So, uh, you know, hopefully it uh, it uh, continues forward and leaps and bounds. Yes. I think you're right. I think, you know, this focus on down-down on prices, down-down on quality, and it's down-down on the environment. And uh, there's a growing realisation that uh, the whole human health relates to... The, the quality of the food and so much of the industrial food we're producing is lacking in basic nutrients and uh, so if we start to adopt a bit of science and really looking at the the real nutrients in the food we're buying and pay and pay for the real value not the uh, not the aesthetic value of the food then uh, 
this could be good for for public health as well. Yeah. Yep. You made the point in the book about uh, the population and and housing, and I guess we all have choices. We can choose where we spend our money. We can choose to spend money on a holiday in Australia, or we can choose to spend money on the, on quality produce produced in a way that's not uh, impacting on the environment. Yeah, and I think we have. You know, we've got all the uh, people. I think a lot of people think that we are producing it sustainably already, and we have. You know, laws and regulations to make sure that, or, or, or they seem to to be there to make sure that we're using the land in a responsible way. But quite often, you know, those laws are completely forgotten, really, when it gets to the ground, and they're, they're, you know they're not regulated at all. And that's certainly a case in our area. We've got all the regulation really that we need to. Uh, to make sure that we're producing food sustainably. It's just that none of it's actually enforced or even monitored. You know, the book is really just about bringing it to people's attention that we're not doing a very good job out here and we really need to have a look at it on a whole sort of society scale because, you know, these these, these wicked problems are not just solved with a little bit of a snippet here or there. Uh, we really need to change the whole system which we operate under. I'm talking to David Pollock from Willeen Station. David's book, The Willeen Way, is a most refreshing read and will interest anyone who cares about how the Australian landscape is managed for an economically and environmentally sustainable future. The Willeen Way is available from the Willeen website, willeen.com.au. Thanks very much, Barry, and thank you for the uh, the opportunity to come on and, uh, and thank you for... Uh continually putting the word out there in term, you know, for regenerative agriculture and tourism in general. Yeah, do good work. I appreciate that. And um, I, I think, uh, I kind of like to think that our radio is regenerative radio in that we're talking about things that aren't being talked about in the mainstream commercial media. Well, like most things regenerative, I think it's less what you're doing and more how you think about how you're doing it. Very good, David. Thank you. No worries. Catch you later. You've been listening to David Pollock from Willeen Station on Conversations on Radio WA as we tell the stories of people and places in Western Australia. To listen to this program and conversations with other innovative West Australians, go to touristradio.com.au slash conversations.